Unashamed, the Recovery Podcast. And hello, Recovery family. Welcome to a new season and another episode of the Unashamed Recovery Podcast, where it is okay to not be okay. I'm your host, Josh, an addict celebrating recovery from a 20-year porn and sex addiction. And new this season is my good friend and co-host, Drew. Hey, Unashamed family. Uh, I'm Drew. I, uh, c- I celebrate in uh, recovery, and um, I deal with a, a 17-year life of addiction, uh, life struggles, uh, living a life of insanity as well. On today's episode, we once again bring you a true story of redemption and hope in overcoming addiction. At the center of what the Unashamed Recovery Podcast is all about is breaking the shame and the stigma of addiction and recovery one episode at a time. And we are breaking that barrier by having honest and real conversations with real people and real recovery, by being unashamed and telling our stories, shining our light of freedom for those still trapped in the darkness. These stories feature people who have faced a lifelong battle of addiction or hurts and habits and hangups and they've hit rock bottom they've overcame that hell of addiction and they have found lasting sobriety whatever that may look like for them these stories are raw and unfiltered but most importantly they are real to show others that we do recover and that there is hope and that there is life outside of addiction Now, these stories may contain adult language and adult content and may be a trigger. To keep these stories as real and true in nature as we can, we don't edit or cut anything out. Uh, We honor those who are willing to share by telling their whole story, even the dark parts, the ugly parts of it. Uh, So viewer discretion is advised. Recovery fam, it is a proven fact that we heal once the shame is gone. And shame dies when we share our story in a safe place. And I hope that this podcast is a safe place for all, for those who are breaking their anonymity and breaking their shame by sharing and also a safe place for everyone listening. There is healing in sharing our secrets and our stories of addiction, our trials, our failures, and and all of our powerlessness, and even more healing in hearing how others have recovered. So, without further delay, let's meet today's guest. We welcome Shauna to the hot seat to tell her story and to share another powerful message of hope and what a story your story really is. Thank you. I'm excited for y'all to hear it. I'm excited to, for you to tell this story. It, it is truly a story. But before we get into her story, let's meet our guest. Shauna, thank you for taking some time out of your day to stop by and to talk with me and Drew and to share your amazing story with the Unashamed Recovery family. It's an honor. I was so... Well, to be honest, you had mentioned something a while back, and I was like, it wasn't the time. I guess everything happens in its rightful time. But I was also kind of um, 
weary because I don't do a traditional 12-step program. So I've been asked to speak before, and I'm like, well, I may not be your girl. So I generally just work in my community with the people that I feel get placed in my yeah. path and vice versa. So it, it's an honor. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, you know, we like to tell everybody's story because there's not just one path to recovery. Like we were talking about before, there's multiple paths. And we like sharing those different stories uh, because... You know, we want people to know that there is different options available to them. So, well, Drew, that's yours. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Shana, we've been talking for a little second now, you yeah. know, uh, but before we start to talk about the, uh, your testimony and unpacking it, uh, can we tell a little, the listeners a little bit about uh, yourself, give them a little bit about the background and the context of your story, uh, as well as um, things that you want them to hear about your story, uh, to kind of focus on whenever, as you tell your story? Okay. Um, I'm Shauna, and I'm 43. I'm from Sand Hill, Mississippi, that's located in Greene County, and we are so rural, we don't even have a red light in our whole <laughs> county, and I pray that it stays that way. Um, the land of the pines, that's where we are, and so it's, I've had a beautiful upbringing, great story up until certain parts, and, you know, working through them was just part of my path here on earth. Um, it carved me into the woman I am today. Couldn't see that at the time. And I feel when you go through incidents like that and you survive it, because there were numerous events I should never walked away from, you have a moral obligation to help and to be there for others. Okay. My sister refers to them as torch carriers. And while some people are good with the elderly, some people are good with um, newborns, I like to think I'm universal, but I am really good with people who this society has rejected, who this society has just tossed to the wayside. That's who I gravitate to. And um, I'm 43. I'm a massage and Reiki therapist. I do energy healing and energy work, which we were speaking about. I went to school. Um, I was in traditional school, and I always hated it. <laughs> I just was there for the social aspects and checked out. You know, I could have been straight A's, but I just did what I had to do to get by. And I was at junior college, and I remember just kind of <clears throat> breaking down. Like, I didn't want to go in debt for something I wasn't even sure about. And that's when I found out I was pregnant with my firstborn, my son, McGuire. I'm the mother of two beautiful sons, McGuire and Jagger. And when I became pregnant with McGuire, a lot of my thinking changed because I have someone else to care about now. Yeah. Um, after he was born, I cannot explain the, the levels, the love. I mean, you think you know love, but our children come here to teach us unconditional love. Yep. I wanted to be better. I wanted to be healthier. And I started getting into the holistic trades, the holistic studies. I went to... Um, Mobile, Alabama, because at the time Mississippi didn't offer any massage therapy courses. I knew that I wanted to be literally hands-on with people. I wanted to help them. I wanted them to feel better. And also studied with the Hawaiian Islands Body Institute of Medicine for Reiki, aromatherapy, things of that nature. So Real quick, um, I don't, I'm not sure if a lot of people are going to understand what Reiki is. Can you okay. kind of just give a, bre a brevity of what that might be? It is. Um, we all, you can argue politics, you can argue religion, you cannot argue or dispute the seven laws of the universe, the seven principles. One being the law of vibration. Um, for everything that 
moves that action, there's an opposite action. This is how we keep the skid going. And with Reiki, when I first learned about it, I was not comfortable. I was 22 years old. As I grew, and it's amazing how God answers prayers. Well, I'm saying God, but you may hear me in some parts of my story call God Dad, because that was another hard subject for me to accept. Um, I did consider myself atheist for a long time. Um, God and Lord are titles. I personally believe that the human tongue cannot pronounce the name of God, so I choose to call him Dad, and I talk to him as though he is my, my father. Um, so anyway, with energy work and with Reiki, um, I wasn't comfortable in it in the beginning, but it was actually when I found myself in the Mississippi Department of Corrections one evening, and there was a girl that was sick and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her, and she was losing blood, and she had had already had sent out for one blood transfusion. So I got permission, can I just work on you? Because she was cramping. Long story short, she had a ruptured cyst. With Reiki, I have to get centered and grounded. And it has to be someone who's in tune. And you have to believe in what you're doing. I can't just study this and say, oh, okay, yeah, I'll try that. You, I believe in healing. I believe in energy work. And when I work with someone and they have complaints or maybe it's emotional trauma, this is really wonderful for women who've experienced sexual trauma, as this lady had. Um, when I started rubbing on her abdomen, as I got to the lower part of her abdomen, my hands started shaking. So I knew that whatever's going on was on the left side of her lower abdomen. And sure enough, she got real sick, got sent out, and she had a cyst that had ruptured. So that's an example. Yeah. But it was in the middle of my lowest point on earth that I realized there's something there to it. So years later, I started applying it just in my daily life or you can I sometimes I can hug somebody one time I was working on a lady and her Achilles was real loose all of our Achilles should be very tight and so I just asked her I'm like what are you not making a decision with you're straddling the fence on something and she was straddling the fence on divorce well she looked at me like I was a seer or something <laughs> but it's honestly it's like Tesla said when you start studying metaphysics and what we cannot see that's when true healing and we'll really learn more about this universe than what's just we've been taught so to speak so that's pretty much what Reiki is is someone who's um, they consider energy work it was <clears throat> It's been talked about pseudoscience, but hospitals now are bringing Reiki therapists in for post-surgery heal-up. I mean, there's all kinds of aspects where the medical community is starting to accept it. Okay. So, um, That's awesome. Yeah, That's I enjoy awesome. it. I mean, it gives me life. Like, it, it's... it's I, yeah, I can't imagine ever working a nine-to-five again, but <laughs> kind of lit up I will if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you're on Facebook, look up Shauna on Facebook. She posts a lot on her Facebook about her massage therapy and her Reiki, and she a lot of great stuff on there. So if you're on there, look her up, find her. Um, a lot of great stuff. Uh, and before we get more into Shauna's story, and there's a lot to, to get into, we just want to take a quick moment and to mention this beautiful studio that we are recording in today. We are on site here at the Governor's Recording Studio at the Mississippi Arts and Entertainment Experience in Meridian, Mississippi. 
The Max is a museum unlike any other in Mississippi. It is a centerpiece showcasing Mississippi's global cultural legacy. And we are truly, truly honored to be here today. And before we hear more from Shauna, take a quick look at what the Max is all about. So, Shauna, as we move into your testimony, like all great stories at the beginning, uh, like all great stories and great books, they all have a beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, so what would be, what does the title of your book look like if you were to write this as a book? Oh, man. <laughs> I would love to say The Alchemist, but that's already been taken. <laughs> because that's exactly what you have to do to get through this. Right. But um, turn lead into gold. Um I really haven't thought about that and I have enough content for, I've written enough vlogs for like 10 books, but I don't like organization, so I don't know. Well, if not just, so much a title, what would chapter one look like? Uh, wake the <laughs> hell up. That's what it would be, wake up, wake up. <laughs> All right, well, Shauna, let's go ahead and start unpacking your story. Where does your story begin? in the um in the vastness where does your story start with because i know your story is not like many people's yours takes a different road mm -hmm. it's a different path uh your the what we had talked about in the emails and all it's completely a different road than a lot of the people that we've had on the show so take us through what the beginnings and your childhood was like? Well, and again, I was raised in Greene County, Mississippi. Um, my parents have, they're about to celebrate 48 years of marriage. Um, wasn't always picture perfect, but I have a strong father. I have a beautiful and wise mother. And they didn't, they were the type of parents that didn't um, stay stagnant. They learned, they became even better parents to my younger sisters, and then they became even better grandparents. And that's something that's been beautiful to witness. Um, and I tell you what, Miss Dottie makes great biscuits. She does. She makes great everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they did. They had the store there in Sand Hill yep. and for 20 years. So we were a pit stop for our community. I don't know how many days you would come. Sometimes us girls would get aggravated because Daddy would be in there, but he was always, if somebody died, he's out the door with ice and drinks, get some food ready. Um, people come in, they couldn't afford groceries. I don't know how much that I watched my father donate or people were in a bind and, and they needed to sell a gun, you know. Um, that's the type of community that we were, we are. And um, I'm the oldest of four girls, um, Leslie, Cara, Mariah, my younger sisters. And I get emotional because there, it's just everything we've gone through and lived through and you, you, this is so normal. And then when you're talking about it, you remember, you remember like this wasn't how it always was. Yeah. Um, I was very fortunate. Um, my father, his true element, which I think God steered his path because he was a superintendent with a construction company. And one evening we get the call, I was six years old. Hell, he had to be flown out of the job because he was helping his men clean up. 
he wasn't even supposed to be out there, but rain was coming. So he was helping him clean up, and he had a bunch of weight on his shoulder, and he slipped, and all the weight went on his right knee, comes straight out of his knee bone, everything comes straight mm. out of his jeans. So he, I think he's had maybe 28 surgeries, and through my childhood, he was it was surgery after surgery and so our world flipped upside down to on one level because i can still remember him carrying us to bed at night and telling us stories and then the next time it was like he was laying there lifeless he was hurting yeah um so does that kind of start your path with like the healing and the the reiki to see your dad Hurting Subconsciously, I'm pro- I'm most certain. Um, I've always had a heart to want to help. When I was 10, I remember saving money for to help. There was something going on, some civil war going on in Romania. And on my parents' church newsletter, there were these babies with their heads were flat, where there was hundreds of babies in a cribs, but nobody there to hold them. And I started saving all my money, and I think I got like twelve dollars together. And I mail- i couldn't wait. I thought I was balling with that twelve dollars. I was like, sealing that envelope, stamping it, like I'm helping them babies. But every night, I would think about them and just rock. I would hold that little baby. Just somebody hold. How can people not be there to hold babies? Yeah, right. So I've always had this heart for suffering. Yeah. And irony, I'd put myself through all of it. <laughs> so, man, like. Listening to your story starting out, I hear so much of my own story of like being surrounded with family. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up just down the road from you in Clara, mm-hmm. and it was very family. So, starting there, where does that kind of go downhill for you? Like, where where do things start going wrong? There was um, things were different after my dad got hurt for real. And he, but I also watched him turn it around. He was good carpenter, so he started carpentry and he started farming. I know for until I was 18 years old, everything we put in our mouth, we grew. My mom would not let us have fast food. We could not have sodas because they were, they were a, a little ahead of their time, and they're thinking white sugar is not good, caffeine is not good. We don't want your bodies hurting when you're. 30. And of course, I thought they were just strict. And I can remember my mom has this joke that when I was 18, I said, I'm leaving home and I'm never eating country food again. And guess what? I'm country food every night. But um, I went through school. We all managed. It was just, you know, how life happens and you just roll with it. And that's the one thing my father and mother both have instilled in me when, you know, let's go. It's what we're doing now. And we moved schools a couple of times, and at the time, I just was mad with my parents for doing that. But later on, I was so thankful because, like, when you take a kid from Richton and move them to Oak Grove, I needed a passport for that campus. I was like, (laughs) I mean, my talk was slow. I mean, it was just like, but I met amazing people that I still talk to this day. So those were the beginnings of me seeing how you can plan life, but it's going to put you where you need to be, and you may not understand it yep. until 20 years down the road. you got to accept it on, the, on its terms. That's <clears throat> the craziest thing. And I never, yeah, I was younger, I never really partied or did a lot because my dad was very strict. I think it was, I was almost 18 the first time I ever drank um, or the first time I ever smoked weed. And I didn't really care for it. Um, 
but there was something raging in me and I couldn't, you know, there had been some childhood trauma. And when I talk, I don't really like to glorify war stories or talk. I really like to stay on the healing side, but there were things that had happened that you just shove down and you don't think about and you just go on with it. And, um, which that would all come out after I had my son. So let's see, I go try college. I had two scholarships. Um, to Jones for the theater and the corral group and I ended up randomly going on the coast. I just went down to the coast with my aunt just to get away from everything for a while and that's another habit I've had to tune into. I like I don't like to stay in one place too long so I go here and go there and what have you. Um, ended up moving back trying to do Jones and then that's where I met my son's father and he and I fell madly in love, and it moved fast, but it was beautiful at the same time. I get pregnant, and of course, small town girl. <laughs> we wanted, you know, I wasn't really wanting to get married, but it was really important to him. And I remember telling him his parents were divorced. Now, if we're going to do this, we're going to see this through. Because I'm not, I grew up in a whole household. And I know, and coming up, all my friends were from divorced households. And I saw, I saw yeah. what it did. I'm like, I'm not doing my boys like that. You know, so we were married for, I had McGuire. And then years later, I had Jagger. And we were married for eight years. And then we went our separate ways, um, which... I guess we need to back up because the addiction to opiates um, began after Jagger was born. Um, I was, you know, worked at my parents' store. I never wanted for anything. Um, that's like the thing in my, the thing that stood out to you, which I felt I had to speak on because it's just like there's a stereotype to this, and there it is. does not discriminate, and. That's one thing with with people who deal with addiction. I don't like calling them addicts because I feel like when you adhere to a label, you, that's who you yeah. are. And like to me, it it can it can be a roadblock. It can be a detour. Yes, it's yeah. not something that you've just got to sit there and mull through the rest of your life. So I had had a couple of surgeries after Jagger was born, and they had started me on opiates. And at that point. And I dealt with a lot of anger on this down the road. They, it was just, it was the opiate scene. Those doctors were giving you samples. They were getting kickbacks for cruises, pushing it, pushing opiates. And a year later, you realize I had got sick one night, and I didn't think, I didn't correlate anything. And the next morning, I called the doctor, and I was like, I was just throwing up. My head's hurting. He was like, well, hold on. He called me in a prescription. I went over there that morning. I got it 10 minutes after I took two. At that point, my addiction wasn't that bad. You see what I'm saying? So I want to kind of give reference. Because okay. back then, when you're talking about it, was a completely different yes. scene yeah. than it is yes, today. It is. Yes, it was. Because let me tell you, I, between the doctors pushing them, you could order them online. Yep. I had two or three a month coming me from a doctor in Florida. There were no... Th- it was an epidemic, and it was an engineered epidemic. That's, you know, all the lawsuits and the Sackler family sitting up there with all these deaths on their hand. And, um, yeah, it was when I got the medicine in me that day, I took two. Like, I was literally taking three a day. That was it. One in the morning, one after, as prescribed. 
even questioned the doctor because my dad picked up my prescription for me the first time he had filled it and he said, Shauna, these are narcotics. Are you sure you're okay? And I said, well, that's what they're giving me because my blood pressure was going through the roof. I was mm. having these headaches. I said, well, I don't know. So that's, it just began so innocently in a way, and I did self-righteously justify that for a long time. Well, I didn't go to the streets. I had the doctors giving it to me. The doctors were giving me. I'm not, I'm not a drug addict. Like, you know, yeah. Okay, so that is where, is how it all began. And then um, all of a sudden, they start coming down. They shut the pain clinics down. They're not sending them to you in the mail. So I go face the doctor who started this whole thing. Yeah. And he's like, well, I can try to wean you off, but it, we don't have a good success rate with that. And I'm like, well, you better figure out something because I was spitfire. I'm like, I didn't even want to take this to begin with. And my mom went with me. We were, I mean, we were firm about it because I went to that clinic two years prior and there was maybe two or three ladies in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. Two years later, there were people standing outside the waiting room. Mm-hmm. Oh, you wow. saw it happen that fast. I was there one day when a girl had actually busted her C-section open to get more pain medicine. Now that is, and this is in 2003, 2004. Yeah. So then they're like, okay, well we're gonna, and then that's when the rehab scene starts jumping off, you know? And um, it was 2005, and let me just let me say this: trying to come off the opiates, of course, you know, then then you're depressed, and then you're this, and then you're that. Well, then they put you on, or they put me on. They tried two different antidepressants, one being Prozac, and then you don't feel anything. Yeah. Um, and Xanax, three milligrams, three times a day. One milligram in the morning, one in the afternoon. I mean, it, that alone is just, they didn't sit down and say, hey, we're going to give you this medicine that's going to really mess up your central nervous system. And after you take three doses, your central nervous system is going to call for it. So that's not how they, you need this, you know? Yeah. And um, it, was, it was one of the biggest, I mean, <laughs> scams. I mean, and it's, it's all freaking legal. Go figure. So, yeah, um, after that, the Xanax kicked in, and then I pretty much just lost my mind on that. I mean, I had family around me, but my thinking was off. I dressed different. I'd had numerous car wrecks with me and my boys, and I'm not proud of that, (laughs) but it happened. And um, this comes from someone who was mother bear. They slept with me. You know, but my mind was hijacked, especially with Xanax, because this is the one thing on Xanax. You lose your human consciousness. You, you're not a conscious, present being on that. Like, when I was in jail as an inmate worker, I would take the women in and help get them their stripes or whatever, and it was to the point to where every girl that come in, and if she said she had a shoplifting charge, I'd be nice and I'd welcome them and I'm like, you take Xanax by chance? No? Why'd you ask that? Yeah. Every shoplifting charge, the girls were on Xanax. Um, that's it's almost what, like this animalistic instinct yeah, kind of well, kicks in and then you just kind of do whatever. Right. And that, I think a lot of that is just how they zombify yeah. present day America. I mean, you get complacent and medicated. So that's when I went to my first rehab. Um, my family surrounded me and... Did I want to go? Well, hell no. 
and they were like, <laughs> you don't have a choice. You're going yeah. or we're about to go sign a writ on you. And I had to go through, um, it was like a nine-day detox because of my levels. And I come out, my skin on fire. But this rehab that was on a golf course, um, <laughs> I get there, and I mean, and I do, I have attitude. I mean, I wouldn't want to deal with me at that point, but it was the first time I'd ever stayed the night away from my sons. Mm -hmm. So I walked in to unpack, throw my stuff down. She was like, well, you need to come on into the meeting room where it's movie night. And I went in there, and they were watching Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo had just come out. That was my boy's favorite movie. I'm looking around. There's all mothers just sitting there sobbing. So I threw a fit, and I was like, "Who the heck, you know? Who's idea? This is sick. Yeah. Like you've got. I'm. This is the first time I'm away from my kids. How? Can, well, she's like, it's it's about the human condition. But I I felt emotionally manipulated, and I know manipulation when I see it, when I feel it. And it, that place was just kind of like a babysitter's club. I called my mom because they had wrote a huge check for mm -hmm. me to go there. And I said, come get me. This isn't it. This isn't it. She was like, you know what your dad would say? See it through. So it's funny because about that 20th or 25th day, they come around recruiting you to stay another 30 days. Mm -hmm. Stay 90. Baby, <laughs> they had my luggage rack outside my door. <laughs> At the 28th day, they were like, get this girl out of here. I was like, y'all sure y'all don't want me for Because I raised hell. I mean, just because for me, the first thing they wanted me to do, and I'm not going to lie, I was in a lot of denial because I was... These people had stories of prostitution. They had stories of their moms pipping them out. They had all that. I can't relate. Yeah. And but the thing that I did not like, I did not agree with, and I don't to this day, is that they want you to admit you're powerless. It, to me, the way I interpret it in my being was, okay, well, you want me to give my power away? Because I feel we all have a divine power we all have we're all creators of our own world what have you however you want to look at it and when I looked around that room because the women on the right side the men were on the left there were the prayers there was the chanting I've always rejected religion I felt a common thing wanting to say the prayer together I pray my own way mm -hmm. but I was I was cooperating but that day when they kept talking about the powerlessness I was like I'm sorry, I don't see powerlessness when I look around this room. I see movers, I see shakers. I see people who had nothing in their hand and turned it into a hit for the next week. I just saw so much talent, even if it was bullcrap, that I did not see, you know, weak, powerless people. I felt, and I still do, that it has a lot to do with detrimental behavior and habits, wounds. I was not even healing from stuff that had happened from when I was a kid. So I just feel the moment you give your power to someone else that you might as well submit to whatever. And I don't submit. You know, I submitted to the drugs for a while, but that was, you know, that was escapism and all that good stuff. But I just I argued with a lot of the 
And they're like, well, this is what works, and this is what works. And that's where it became stamped in my psyche that if I don't work a program, I can't be sober. And they're like, we'll see how you're doing. So I did. I did the 90 meetings in 90 days, and I hated every bit of it. There was not a lot there that I heard or saw that I wanted because I do believe in the law of attraction. And I didn't want to be 50 years old coming here and happen to do this. Like, let's figure this out. And what was that you were saying before? 20 years in and still making the pot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be in some basement or, or the worst. Like, you would have people, hey, I come to Hattiesburg on a business meeting with my husband and had to get to a meeting. Like, that's what the drugs inconvenience my life like that. Why do, if I want to travel, I got to find a meeting when I travel. And then you got a sponsor. So it's almost like you're trading the drug addiction for a meeting addiction. Yeah. All the same. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. And then you've got. And I'll just go ahead and say, you know, I went to rehab three times before I started getting a clue. Um, But the second rehab I went to, and I don't know if y'all have heard, she's not in effect anymore, was Betsy Storm. She had the best of both worlds in Meridian. And she is a healer. She was like, I'm not doing any medicine. There was no antidepressants. When you come in there, it's like we're raw dogging this. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's just how there's no other way to put it. And you don't forget it. Yeah. that way and you have to understand too the way SSRIs and psychotropics work on the brain is you just become desensitized and numb and so she did not believe in the antidepressants and I remember when I got to her because after I got off Clearview I went in addicted to two prescriptions they sent me out of there with eight prescriptions oh man oh wow and my parents when they picked me up that day I just handed them my bag and they were like what in the hell? And I said, I tried to tell y'all because <clears throat> the first week, the doctor, and this is something that stands out to me to this day. He was just, a, he wasn't listening. He was writing. And something was reflecting in my eye. I thought it was a sun dancer. And it was his monogram cufflink. The sun was hitting it and it hit me. And I scooted back and I looked at his shoes. He didn't have one scuff mark. So then I thought, all right, let's reverse this. Well, how did you quit drugs? And he said, I didn't. I don't have a drug problem. Well, how are you going to help me? Exactly. Well, the mind is blah, blah, blah. I'm just here to medicate your mind pretty much. And so I learned quickly, and this is my philosophy, the only people who are going to be able to help you through it are people who have gone through it That's themselves. Right. That's right. And um, I come out. I was extremely medicated. My parents and I sat down. We were like, we'll try it for a month or so. But it wasn't two or three months later, and I was on the antidepressant and Xanax again. Right back where I'd started from. Wasn't really fooling with opiates at that point. And um, it, let's see, it. I don't know. I don't know if we need to just, you just want to go on into the grid of it or. Yeah, go ahead and let's just, yeah. (laughs) Because that worked for a while. I maintained, you know, I was back on a low dose of Xanax and the antidepressants. And then um, there were, uh, that's when I went to, well, I was having certain, I don't know, reservations. There was things working in me that I was just, ignoring I needed to face I was at this point about to go through a divorce because he and I he had was also a very bad alcoholic and he evolved into that I evolved for years it was beautiful and then his drinking just became worse and worse 
and I was medicated. It was just bad. So we finally had an amicable split. We've always been able to talk, co-parent. We had the same lawyer. I'm all about family. Yeah. Um, but something happened, and I can't, if I'm honest, I really can't remember what. I think I had um, some dental work or something. I started getting prescribed opiates again. Well, by this time, it's been years since I've been prescribed. So a month or so, I was all right, and I went back to get some more. And he wrote me some more, but he was like, no, I'm not going to keep you on these. I was like, okay. And so then I started doctor shopping. And one day, a doctor was really ugly with me, and he was just a smart, just judgmental. And I was like... And I was just, I'm a pretty vocal person. I'm very confrontational. Let's nip this in the bud. And I was like, well, the reason I'm here is because your freaking colleagues decided to, you know, ride it out like it was Pez, you know, Pez dispenser or something. And he was like, well, it's a different world now and all this. And thankfully so. But he walked out and his prescription pad was there. And I was like, oh, well. And I took the prescription pad, dropped it in my bag and walked out. And I ordered a pharmacology book off eBay, and I learned how to write my own prescriptions. And I learned how to call them in, too. And that's what I began to do for a straight year. I wrote my own prescriptions from Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. When they caught me, it was like, you're going federal, baby. You know, (laughs) we can't even, they didn't even know where to start because... Finally, um, well, let me say this, though. That's, that was the beginning, and I was very successful with it for a while. And so how long did that go on for? Oh, I forged for um, probably about two years. Oh, yeah. Never, nobody ever. I started getting sloppy with it at the end, but I was ready. At that, the time I got arrested... I had went and got clean. That's when I went to Betsy's. Betsy was all natural, you know, and she, we had to do the yard work. We had to walk. We had to learn to function again. This wasn't like you're sitting and watching videos. There was no TV. It was, we were the weed eaters when we, you know, we walked. It was just, it was beautiful. And so um, that's when I come home. I'm fresh. I'm healthy. I'm clean. And a year later, the sheriff calls my dad and says, we got a warrant down here for Shauna. Y'all need to come on down here. Well, I wasn't worried about anything. I sometimes thought, like, what if something ever comes back? But they hadn't caught me yet. And that was just, I was clean. Nothing can touch me. And we got to the sheriff's office, and I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was a bounced check because in active drug addiction, I had bounced checks for, you know, to float me. And um, thought I took care of all of them, but that's what I thought it was. So when I walked in, the deputy was like, sit down, baby, you're not going anywhere. And I said, what is it? And he said, we have two felony warrants from Lamar County for prescription forgery. And I looked at my dad and my mom, and I was like, well, I mean, there's no arguing it. I know it's me. And so Lamar County comes and gets me. My mom and dad are right behind me. I bond out. I'm not, I didn't even have to sit down. I was like, get me out of here. And um, then, you know, I, I go back to regular life, and then we get another phone call. We need Shauna down here. We got another warrant for her arrest in Adams County, Natchez, Mississippi. And I did sit down with a couple of DEA because they were like, you got to 
taught to, like they were they weren't coming at me they wanted to be educated they were like how did you do this I was like it's super easy and uh, that's when I also told them I was like have y'all thought about putting the pharmacies online have you thought so people you know told them about doctor shopping I mean if you can go to Walgreens and get a um, a script of 90 Lord tap 10s and you can go across the street CBS and get another 90 like y'all can't communicate you can't, we can't somehow you yeah. know because I, I had talked about how that would have how, when you're in that mindset you want to be stopped you want someone to halt you know what you said the other night when you were like you posted something about reaching out, but you got to reach in. And that yep. was like, I was like, that's it. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> we can't always, when we're in that, we can't always just reach out. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember when I was in it, like, you're so desperately wanting help, but you just cannot pick up that phone that weighs 800 pounds. Mm-hmm. And, like, when I was in my relapse, if one person would have reached in, it would have made all the difference it in the world. Have. And they don't know, but that's programming too. Yes. Because we are taught from a young age to look outside of ourselves for a savior. To look, you yep. know, we're never taught. The first line of the Dead Sea Scrolls says, "The kingdom of heaven is within." We're never taught to go within. We're taught to look out. Someone, your little girl, the, the knight in shining armor is coming to save the day. No, baby, you're gonna save the day. Yep. This is your story. This, yep. you are the savior of your own story, and I believe that to the marrow of my bones. Yep. But um. I've so, got these warrants on me, and I come back, and I'm like, okay, they're coming for me. I'm out on three felony bonds. And I think that's when I just let fear override my system. And when I went back, they always say when you go back, you go back way worse than you ever were. I started off with an addiction of three pills a day to the point where I'm ashamed of saying how many I was taking when they got me. So I just went reckless and I was um, one evening and like I said, and the story that you saw, like I was at Rite Aid and um, all of a sudden I see a car swoop in the front of me, one's behind me and one's right there and they're screaming, get out, get out, get out, get on the, on the ground, on the ground. and. Let me back up so I can explain why they did this. Probably a week prior, I got busted in Petal, Mississippi for forging one. Okay. The cops come get me, and um, again, I'm ready, Just, just, but they let me bond out. How they let me bond out on all these? Well, Forest County, what they said was, we're going to let this one run concurrent with Lamar County. so this last time when they got me, that's why a lot of them thought that I was dealing because it was just, you know, I'm like, no, it's, this is what it does to people. But the area was not understanding. The most they seen in opiates were overdoses. And I just wouldn't die because <laughs> I tried. So I remember when, you, when I saw your post about it, you were talking about at that time you were consuming an abnormal amount of right. opiates, and you were at three times the lethal limit, is that correct? Yeah, when they busted me, I had a bottle of 40 that was empty, and he said, who'd you sell these to? And I said, um, I took those, I've already eaten them. You hadn't eaten these, you'd be dead. And I'm like, no, they did with opiates, you slowly build a high, high tolerance. And he just was arguing with me, so when they went to book me, um, the lady at the sale was the lady 
at the jail was saying, we can't, if she took those, we can't book her until the doctor clears her. So he took me to Forest General, and I'm handcuffed to the bed, and I'm just, you know, I know this is just pointless. And so the doctor comes in, and he sits down, and he could have been, he could have been a dick. He could have been anything, but he wasn't. He sat down, and this is what I call earth angels. This is when this divinity somehow intercepts, and he put his hand on mine, and he said, do you have a death wish? And I was like, no. And I said, it just takes that many. I said, why do you think I'm forging? Like, I'm, I'm, and he said, okay, you need to understand that I have signed death certificates with you are above, you are three times the lethal dose. And I said, well, what's my, what's my level supposed to be? And he said, zero. <laughs> and I was like, and he, he took my hand and he said, you know what you're about to go through? Because at that point, I had only medically detoxed. And I said, I know. And he said, it's going to be hard. But he said, I want you to look at me. And I remember looking up at him. And he said, you should be dead. You should. He's like, I can't say this enough. So just whatever you got to learn, learn it. Because, you know, and um, at the time, I was like, just shut up and get me out of here. You know, you're not thinking. Right. But you look back and you're like, damn, you know, that was heavy. And he could have been a jerk, but he was he was very empathetic towards it. And... We talked about the tolerance and all that and anyway, because that's how it is with opiates, you know, and that's when the overdoses happen. When you take a break, you think you can go back eating that many and then you then you OD. But um, so from that point, I'm, I'm just going to assume that was your rock bottom. Like that's, is that a safe bet to say? <laughs> well, the rock bottom at that point, yes, because this arrest is when I lost custody of my two sons. Because the thing with opiates is that you function well. My family just didn't have a clue until I went to them, you know. And if yeah, I was you weren't a, the classic, right, stereotype, yeah. Yeah. Like it, yeah, it was very easy to overlook that. Yeah, I'm the T-ball mom. I take cupcakes to school, <laughs> and you know, like that night, the irony of, or one of the cops was laughing at the arrest because. They get me out. They get me on the ground. I've got guns pointed at me. And I'm like, y'all, like, I'm harmless. And they put me in cuffs, put me in the car, and I was driving a Land Rover. So they have to get me out of the car, one hand uncuffed to come show them how to crank it and move it out of the way. They're like, this beats all I've ever seen. And I'm, I've got one officer over here in the truck with me and one sitting at the door with me. And I'm like, hold on. So I get it cranked up. And the officer pulled me out, and the other officer had to move it. And yeah, like that's to me, that speaks volume for what addiction is. Like addiction right. doesn't care. Like we hear so many stories of the complete opposite, where the people fit the mold. They're homeless, where drug addiction drove them to homelessness, and they're living on the street, and they're robbing people, and like they're just barely getting by. But here we listen to your story. And yours is the complete opposite, where you're a soccer mom driving a Land Rover, and everybody is vulnerable to this. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, there's no, 
there's no immunity to it at right. all. Well, well it doesn't addiction doesn't have a description of type of person that it goes after. I guess is what you're trying to say, yep. Josh. Mm-hmm. But yep. you know, we we, uh, we think everybody fits this certain mold that people are supposed to fit in. Well, that's probably an addict. That's not. And then you know, you get the uh, the PTA soccer mom mm-hmm. uh, that's taking her son to t-ball practice. It's yeah. writing her own scripts. You know, that's um yep. yeah. that's one of those things that's really outstanding. But you know, it's just it just shows that. Uh, Addiction doesn't have a, a, mm-hmm. a face or a name. It just it, it'll yep. grab you. Well, I do want to interject this. They were wise with the opiate epidemic. They were very wise. I believe that it was definitely engineered. And you can't get them this way. Let's get them this way. Let's go back to the 80s and talk about Detroit and the crack epidemic. We know exactly by now, you have a computer in your hand, how that happened. And it was government infiltration. And they never went back and fixed the city or anything to launder money, blah, blah, blah. Well, if they can't get you one way, they're going to get you another. You know, that's how I felt. So there are two forces at work in this world, the good and the bad. Star Wars nailed it. You know, they really did. <laughs> and it's an illusion, a lot of the things we see. And that was one of the things, like, when I was in jail, I did a few stints, a few overnight, you know, warrants in county. And I had to spend a few days in Forest County. And it was like, um, everybody would say, what are you doing here? You don't belong, you know? And I'm like, okay, well... I had known nurses that were in the game, like, well, y'all fisting to see an influx in this, I'm telling you. And by the time I got to, at that point, I had, I was in Lamar County for 10 months and I was an inmate worker. And it was very humbling, you know. Um, and then all my, char- because when I sat down and they were like, we got seven charges in our hand, five a pop, that's 35 years. That's what I was looking at. How many more is out there? I said, y'all, there's a hundred. There, there's two or three hundred out there. I mean, so they had to put a cap on my case when they did it. If anything comes up past this date, you know, they're, you know, I'm serving my time. It's done. Yeah, right. And um, I was an inmate worker there for ten months at Moore County. Worked through, saw a lot. Um, Came home for six months. Went and done my time at MDOC. They sentenced me. They let all the charges run concurrent because the doctor in Lamar County would not give. The doctor, and I'm thankful for that, I am, because had that happened years prior, it may not have, you know, had I just been caught something, you know? But this was the way my path had to go because I had to go to MDOC. I had to get the heart I have now because I can't help other people through it. I can't do what I do with women unless I had felt and experienced it. And so, but yeah, I came home six months and then went and did my time. They sentenced me to five years to MDOC. But get this, when I got up to MDOC and got processed, um, everyone has to go through Rankin to get processed. Yep, that's right. <clears throat> and um, that was, I just, there was stuff there I just never, you can't unsee. Yep. It was bad. Um, county I mean, I, was. I worked <laughs> for years with DOC, and mm-hmm. you are very right. There's just stuff that happens there that you just, Mm-hmm. Nobody believes. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a whole other world. It was, and I was not. I'm thankful because I had to sit in county six weeks waiting on MDOC, and those old-timers were like, all right, every morning I'd have one coach me on this. I'd have one coach me on this. And the one thing that was consistent was when you get to that gate, you're going to want your mama. And I was like, man, y'all shut up. I've done done county time. I'm all right. Now, I'm telling you, when you see that gate, and even with them preparing me like they did when I saw that gate, I wanted my mama. 
And because you know you're going in there and you may or may not come back out, you know, and you don't know what's on the other side. And so, um, but I remember they prepared me. Those were little earth angels there that were schooling me. I didn't even know it. I remember rolling my eyes at them. The women had schooled me when I got there. And don't ever think people don't have a purpose because there's old timers, there's lifers in that system that is taking care of young women in that system. Right. Um, Well, Sean. I know we could go on for another two hours with the stories that I've heard you share about what it was like during your time there, but I want to redirect and I want you to share with the listeners of what your healing, that journey looked like for you. Because I know it was different. It was not the traditional 12 step. Mm -hmm. It was not your traditional recovery. What did that look like for you? What was your path to sobriety and healing? Well, when the best thing, one of the best things that happened to me at MDOC was just being away from everything for a good bit. When I got up there and got processed, they were like, you just have to do the A&D treatment and go home. I said, no, ma'am, that judge gave me five years. She said, no, you're only going to be here about eight or nine months. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Wow. You know, so I did what I had to do. I got sent to Flowood. I was on the work facility. I worked at Mississippi um, Prison Industries. Yep. The governor's... Um, letterhead, his business cards, I printed all those out, and it was, um, you know, they were real good to me there. When I got home, I was happy to be home. It was hard adjusting because, you know, at this point, my sons are living with their father. I've been away from them for a total of two years at this point. Um, I'd seen them some when I was home for those six months. I was locked up 10 months, home six months, locked up another 10 months. Life pretty much went back to normal. I stayed, um, I mean, I drank every now and then. Nothing really took me over the edge. I'm not, you know, because to me, I mean, what is is sobriety to you? For me, sobriety is that length of time that I put in between myself now and that last time that I resulted back to that self-destructive behavior that I engaged in. Right. Yeah. That, that to me is my sobriety. Right. Uh, and I know that looks different. Drew, he probably has a different definition. Um, and many of our listeners probably has a different definition, but that is mine. It's that length of time in between now and that last time. Right. My, uh, my definition uh, pretty much goes into abstaining. Uh, from all use uh, at that at that particular point, um, you know, because uh, for me, for me um, to stop using drugs, to basically stop drinking, uh, and then cut out some of those just nasty life habits, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's my sobriety. Okay. Um, you know, that's where I thrive uh, today in making some of the choices to go against, you know all the use of um, and basically just living an insane lifestyle you know you'll hear me talk about it uh, sometimes um, uh, if you ever hear my story uh, I'll tell you how insane it was Mm -hmm. you know it was um, just bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and I've had to start you know making the next right decision Uh, so that's a part of my sobriety story as well you know so to me sobriety is or what sober means is like Anything you can't fast from, you're a slave to. If I can't, you know, I, and I check myself on the daily. If I start getting into certain routines or whatever, because we are programmed, yep. you know. And I pay attention to that a lot, programming. Um, 
But after I got home, you know, I'm working at my parents' store. I go working. I'm work, doing work with friends. It's great for a while. And then in 2014, I went on a hard binge. I'd had a wreck. They prescribed me pills. I needed some for a few days, but not a month with refills. And um, that I had a couple of binges that year. Um, my I wasn't in a good place because I never felt good enough. Me losing custody of my sons was the worst. I imagine. As a woman, you can't get any lower. Like, what? Like, you know, and that's like even now, well, the end of the world's going to happen? Well, okay, I'm here for it because I've lived through the worst that could possibly happen to me outside of one of my loved something happened to one of my loved ones. But I wouldn't forgive myself. How do you do that? I felt like I had to hold on to that. I felt I deserved to be in, um, I just, I just, I held on to it. And my sons had forgiven me. My sons were happy to see me. But there was also something else, and I know someone's going to hear this, because there's a lot of self-righteous parenting out there. Um, they were, they were, I was, I was almost afraid of hurting them. I can't explain it. I just didn't. They're doing good. They're great at life. They're smart, straight A's. But just something about me didn't feel good enough. And I wrestled with that. And then the binges came, I think, three times that year. And then after that, it was in 2015 when I really started going within. And I mean within. And I got honest. And there were certain... You know, I could sit here and tell you amazing divine intervention and people that had stepped in and said the right thing or did the right thing that kept adding to the path I was on. So that's how you know you're on the path. And it's all a journey within. And I began to see instead of, I lost my boys. No, I didn't. They're right here with me. And they're really successful. And so any parents out there that are beating yourself up because you lost custody, any kids out there, you know, that are separated, you know, it's sometimes I feel in my situation, God had to separate us so I could grow one way and my boys could grow another way. Because I was that in your face doting mom serving them breakfast in bed. Yeah. They may have not grown up to be the smart, independent men that they are if I had been over them all the time. There's all kinds of different avenues I've had to look at it to make me mentally cope with it that that's the way it had to happen. And I've also personally have seen an in your day every day present like in your face parent ruin a kid quicker than an absent parent ever would so don't ever think because y'all had a break or a pause or a separation you can't get back in there and play because it's I let that that's what nearly killed me like seriously there was major depressive episodes I even tried to overdose twice and you know, not want to focus on that, but focus on the healing part. Um, my son began, he plays, they play music in church. So they'd invite me, well, I don't do religion, but I go to their church. <laughs> and um, it's, it's funny because we talk, we make jokes that I'm out in the world getting people and they're in the church preaching instead of hellfire and brimstone. My boys are preaching redemption, yeah. hope. They know. I mean, it's it's so powerful to hear my son talk because both of them. I went last Sunday to hear my other son because he'll tell you no matter what because he's dealt with a little depression and he had separation anxiety because he's my baby. Both of them were. Yeah. 
And they had to find their own outlets to heal being away from me because I left a void in their life. And they turned to music and God. They both play. My oldest son is in theology school. He plays lead guitar for the program there. My youngest son, Jagger, is playing drums. The other day I watched a whole congregation. Everybody's praising God and doing. And I'm looking around, and all these people are moving to my son's beat. And I was like, I was overwhelmed with pride and with joy. And the, and it also goes to show when you don't shove God in someone's face, they'll find it on their own. They will find that path. So that's um, 2015, especially 2016, 2017 is when I had a real come to Jesus meeting with myself. And um, you would, I consider shadow work kind of like what y'all consider the fourth step. And that's where you integrate your dark side the ego, the subconscious, with, you know, we like to talk about what we're bad at, what we're good at, but it's all about integrating. And that's when I started seeing at this point, I had turned 40 and I really started seeing how things had to happen. Right. And I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't have. And then I have this person coming and this person, and then I've helped that person, you know, just by a phone call. Hey, our kid's in jail. Leave him there. Yep. Let his ass dry out. Leave him there. Go talk to the judge. Get him working in the community. Pick up trash. Serve dinners. To me, there is more healing that can take place working in your community. Get, let them dry out in jail. Work in the community. Teach them service work. Yeah. And um, Or I'll have somebody come to me. I got a call one night. went to the hospital. The girl was combative. She was not. They wanted her to go to get treatment. As soon as I walked in there, and she was screaming at me. And I said, baby, like, I've been right where you are, been in this bed, you know. And so it takes people like that. Five minutes with her, we got her going to treatment. Right. You see what I'm saying? So had I been another nurse, she wouldn't have heard anything. That's right. <clears throat> That's right. So, you know, in that path, like, I, I, I love it because it's unlike a path that we have heard before. Mm-hmm. That path that you just described not many people go that route, and that's just that's that's. There's not enough words to describe that. Like that is where the hope is. Yeah. Like to go from growing up rural Green County mm-hmm. on a farm, <laughs> and to end up going through all the things that you went through, and to go through all of that. And end up surrounded by DEA agents mm-hmm. and doing time and to become who you are today. Like, that is so huge and paramount. And, like, it is just a sure enough miracle. And it is the biggest ray of hope that I can think of. You are, Shauna, you, you are a lighthouse of hope. In the darkness, shining out to all those drowning in hopelessness. In that addiction, of, uh, darkness of addiction. If your story isn't a fiery example of hope, and that we do recover, and I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, we. Um, 
and I try to blog about it a lot about my experiences yes. and it's I've noticed that when I write and talk about being locked up people freak out and respond and share and I mentioned it to my sister one day and she was like because she's like I forget you went to prison yeah I forget that whole <laughs> era it's like a you know and I was working with a girl one time um, a couple years back down at Chevron and I was saying something about me being in jail and she was like wait what you were in jail and I was like oh yeah I did I did some time and she was like <laughs> what? And I said, drugs. She was like, wait a minute. I can't even imagine you on drugs. But the thing was, I stayed beating myself up so much, I didn't stop and acknowledge my growth. And I was like, she sees me as that because I've grown. Yes. You know, right. I'm a whole different person. Yep. And the thing with, to me, I don't not, whatever anybody has to do to get them sober, I mean, more yes. power to you. But I just felt a lot with the program, they come right in wanting you to depend on them. And then, there was a lot of hypocrisy with the program too. Like, um, you, I got 12 years clear of alcohol, but I eat Ambien and Clonopin at night. And you know, to me, I don't want to depend on anything. I don't want to depend on a meeting 11 o'clock. I got to be okay in my own skin. I got to, I got to walk the wall. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it's, it's. I had to be okay with me, and that's where my journey led me. And a lot of the times, in the way we're moving in this era, you know, the old religion and stuff. I mean, it's not. You know, these, these kids are coming up smarter and they're desensitized. They've been born. They, we've been in perpetual war. Any kid after 9-11 has just grown up desensitized. It's all, okay, what, we're in another war? Whereas with us, the world was different. Right. And these kids, they're not hearing what you're preaching. You know, so it is about the law of attraction. And I notice sometimes when people gravitate to me, you know, sometimes it's just like it gets overwhelming and I have to take steps back and yeah. not answer messages. And, and that's actually what we've been working on. I had paint all over me as <laughs> trying to scrub it off because we've been painting. I have a space in Richton. And um, the whole vision I'd seen the last three years was me starting women's empowering circles. I've been in circles with women from rehab to jail to prison, and I've seen miracles work. I've seen women pick themselves up. Our communities are only get better if we get better. That's we right. all got to heal. I'm so tired of seeing grown ass adults walking around with broken children inside of them, and teaching the only them conflict after conflict yes. instead of knowing that you know that home is peace or supposed right. to be peace. And yeah. then one toxic thing to another, and and these kids have grown up with their parents divorced and on drugs. Every household's been affected up with it by now. They're over the BS. My boys, both of them, have never drank or smoked. I got a 22 year old and an 18 year old. Don't care for it. Don't want a prescription. Get it away from me. They've never even been to a party. And a lot of these younger kids and millennials are staying at home. Yeah. They're going kayaking. They're going hiking. They're getting back into. They're over right. the BS. Yeah. And so. That's, to me, our youth, our children, or, you know, the Hopi Indians have this thing, and um, I have Native on both sides. They believe that our children are our spiritual elders. I believe that we were with Source before we came here. Um, that's why I think when I came in this world rejecting it, you know, I've mentioned that. Like, I just always felt homesick. I didn't belong here. I felt rejected. Drugs were that escape. It quieted the inside voice. Yeah. Um but our children are actually our spiritual elders. So I look at my children with such respect and honor where some people will talk any which way to their kids, not knowing that child is here to teach your ass, you know, to show you unconditional right. love, teach you patience, you know. And so this youth coming up, I see such greatness. We hear so much bad, but I see a lot of greatness in our young people. Yeah. And that's why um, 
I just wanted to start something for my community. I don't know if it'll go or not. I told my mom the other day when we were painting, I said, what if I start this and nobody shows up? They'll come. They'll come. Because I do get a lot of messages, and I hate not being able to just really take time with these people. So now I'm like, hey, show up, and let's sit in a circle and have a powwow. That's, That's right. pretty much right. where we're starting at. <laughs> and if it'll go with it, it'll, hey. it's meant to go. That's right. Well, Shauna, man, I've so enjoyed it. And I hate to wrap it up, but we're running out of time. Like, we could sit here, and we could go on for another two hours. <laughs> I, I wish we were the Joe Rogan show. Right. That's, that's exactly what we would do. And, uh you know, at the end of every episode, uh, we do have a small list of questions that we're going to uh, throw at you. Okay. Uh, and with the time constraints, we're just going to uh, narrow it down to one. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, Shauna, once again, thank you for coming by and sharing this incredible story today. Thanks for thank you. Uh, being Thanks you so open and willing to be so vulnerable uh, in an effort to be unashamed. Uh, I know that it's not always an easy thing to do, and to show my appreciation and to show Drew's appreciation, I want to give you just a few moments of an open mic. Uh, my show, Drew's show, it's your show. Uh, you have the opportunity to say anything that you want to in okay. an effort to reach that one person who may be listening that needs to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um. One thing I heard repeatedly throughout trying to get sober was, we just miss the old Shauna. We want the old Shauna back. And one, I personally believe, and even the word recovery means like to return to the natural state. I don't think we go through it to return to anything. I think we go through it just if you, and there's four different testaments to Christ's teachings, and each one of them pretty much say the same thing, but they talk about um, what he's preaching is not, he's not wanting to be worshiped. He preaches transformation. Yeah, you're right. And there's never no going back. There was never no getting back to the old you. You're not going to get those glory days back. You're not going to have that picturesque family, you know, that you had sitting over there on the mantle. But the point was that it all had to take place to get you where you needed to be. I believe that we all have to go through things that are necessary for our soul's growth. And when I was very young, I remember just having those prayers, let me help people, just let me help. Now, did I have that in mind, you know, that I would yeah. go through all of that? <laughs> but I'm so in touch with the human condition where somebody may think, oh, they're crazy or they stink. Well, I'll take them in my arms with a quickness, and I've done that several times. So don't ever think that you've got to, you know, get back to something. There's no looking back. Every day, just every day I wake up and I'm like, because I have to coach myself all during the day, stay here, stay present, stay now. Because, you know, we're always in the future of the past. Yeah. And just know, like, within one breath, literally, like, when I, I sat out by a tree in 2017 and just started purging, purging everything. And I would do that for days. And within just months, my life started changing. What I drank, what I put in my body, the company I keep. Why? Because I didn't love myself. I didn't really respect myself. I loved everyone else. Right. Self-love is the, and nobody teaches it. Nobody teaches it, but that's what I'm going to try to help show to women. And men, too. I work with men um, as well, but to to love and honor and just respect yourself, and we're not taught that, and it is hard. It I is. was 
41, I think, before I could fully say, you know what, you're not half bad. So loving yourself and knowing that within one breath and one heartbeat, you can turn it all around. It does not always have to be this way. I think we were talking about that a little bit earlier before we ever started was just the fact of uh, negative self-talk and how mm-hmm. how defeating it really is. Uh, because we, you, I heard you mention the subconscious being the enemy at some point. Right. Uh, it does become an enemy to yourself because basically you end up turning into that that subconscious thought. Your subconscious doesn't know truth from lie. Mm-mm. You know, uh, it just and it your subconscious feeds. will lie to you. Oh, your yeah. mind will lie to oh, yeah. you. Yeah. Quick, quick, fast, and hurry. So that's why, you know, when um, God was saying what you think about, or Jesus said in the Bible, what you think about, you become. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that I've, through my, you know, transformation process, recovery process, uh, that's something I have to keep reminding myself Mm -hmm. that if I think negatively or if I act in a negative manner, then that that will become me. You know, if I start thinking and acting in a positive manner, then that's where I have to be at. And you can see it. It does not take long. One step, one step. Once I just quit drinking Coke, I started thinking differently once I dropped soda. But they're not going to, nobody's going to teach you that in a program. They're not going to teach you nutrition. They're not going to teach you that you produce 80% of your serotonin that we're always chasing serotonin in your gut. So if you're not eating right, you're not thinking right. Those are things that, you know, that's the oldest mantra, know thyself. You've got to know your vessel. You've got to know your ship. You've got to know this is transporting the most precious item on earth, the human soul. You've got to know how to navigate this thing. You've got to know what's your trigger, what you react to. Why do you lie when you're asked this? Why do you ignore people? Why do you get silent when you get mad? There's all these things that we're just not taught to actually communicate and deal. And it goes back to just knowing who the hell you are, you know, other than your name or occupation. Yep, that's right. Right. Well, Shauna, man, I... I I know. (laughs) We got to go. Shauna, thank you once again for coming by. And tell everybody, uh, if somebody wants to reach out or if somebody wants a Reiki session or Mm -hmm. maybe there's a recovery podcast out there that wants to get you on to, to share your story with them, Tell everybody how they can reach you. Okay, I'm on Facebook at Shauna Wade. I'm on Instagram. That's my community. I'm more of an Instagrammer, and I love the community there because there's not a lot of gropping. Um, and Instagram, <laughs> I'm Shauna.Wade. Okay. And you can email me at SwadeLovesGmail. So. All right. And, guys, we're going to be putting all of that in the show notes of the, of the podcast on on the podcast and on the YouTube video. So that'll be there for you to click on, on the link. And uh, Sean, once again, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been amazing. Thank you. And with that, y'all, that's all the time we have for today. We hope that today's episode has shined some ray of hope and encouragement for you. We hope that it's inspired you to not give up and that you too can have a life outside of addiction and can have lasting sobriety. Recovery fam, don't forget that you can always join us for more recovery conversations on Twitter. Find us at Unashamed Recovery and also use the hashtag Recovery Posse to connect with thousands and thousands of others in the Twitter recovery community worldwide. Do you want to be on the show to share your amazing story with listeners from around the world like our guest today did? Or maybe simply you want to tell us how we're doing. Or do you have any suggestions or questions uh, for me for the show? Send the show an email at unashamedpodcast 
at yahoo.com. That's unashamedpodcast at yahoo.com. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast, and I hope all hope you all continue to stay sober. And until next time, we love you, and y'all remember to be unashamed. unashamed.